0: Just think what critical race theory is. They're saying that accidental features of you are defining of you. So they're taking these children and they're introducing them to the limits they face. And they're taking away from them specifically their humanity.
1: Today I sit down with Larry Arne, president of Hillsdale College and a professor of history and politics. We discuss why critical race theory goes against basic humanity, why a nation cannot be governed by experts, and what a good education really means.
0: Because we've turned our sights on nature itself and attempted to overpower it. That's why we're distorting children today. This is American
1: Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kelleck. Dr. Larry Arnn, such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders. My great pleasure, Jan. Very good to be with you. Well, so, as it would happen, you know, we've been planning to do this for a little while, and as it would happen, the day before we get to sit down, you launched this new initiative, the Academy for Science and Freedom, and, you know, all of which the members are also, I mentioned, American Thought Leaders, like (laughs) you you become here. I mean, speaking to the show, of course. What brought this about? Give me a sense of why this is important, what's going on.
0: Well, I I have a particular responsibility in my professional life. I'm supposed to operate a college. Supposed to make it great, but the first step is to have it operating. And so for the first time in our 177 years, there were disruptions to that. The pandemic hit in spring break. Most colleges announced they were no more classes The Ivy League colleges announced no more classes until Christmas and if you understand about a college that's a huge cost because college happens you know for millennia college happens for people in late adolescence into early adulthood and there's the way they are their curiosity their energy their maturity but not quite complete that is why it happens then, and they're made for it. There's joy in it, and, and now they're to all stay home. That's just a cost, and I thought, I should figure out if we can have college. The first step would be, you know, just because the government today recommends everything about every detail of life, and their recommendations change all the time, and these pandemic recommendations change by the day, literally. And so, you don't, you don't have to be a brilliant person to say, yeah, well, is that reliable? So I decided to figure out, is it safe for the students? I like to tell the kids, if you get sick of this and die, it'll be very inconvenient to me. And so I thought, you know, I don't want to kill them. You know, I, we will bear the cost of that along with their families. Will it? And uh, another thing, as uh, we thought about this, we thought urgently about this, night and day, during spring break is when it happened. And I thought, you know, it's an interesting thing. We can isolate anybody who wants to be isolated, except the students. They live in dormitories together. They feel immortal. You know, they're not uh, Mike Pence when he was running all the task force. He said, can you keep them distance? I said, there'd only be one way I'd have to persuade them. It's a duty because they're not going to want to do it. And he said, could you persuade them that? I said, yeah, if I believed it, I could, (laughs) but I didn't. I found out from these three guys and I discovered their writing and I discovered that they're very serious academics. You know, these guys are, they're like the best teacher you ever had. They're also restrained. Uh, They're very good at not saying more than they know. You know, they helped us on a weekly basis for months and wouldn't let me pay them anything. And, uh, And we had college. And that, you know, we were threatened a fair amount by the government. But you know, we have lawyers and we thought we could defend ourselves. And we had a case that they helped us assemble. Because uh, you know, it's a, whatever the law says, whatever the health department says, whatever anybody says, I'm responsible. And you know, that responsibility won't go away. And so, you know, to do the job, you have to accept the responsibility. And then it becomes, you know, a a peer of mine on a a Zoom call said, we just have to know what the government recommends and we have to know what other colleges are doing. I said, yeah, I don't really need to know either of those things. I said, the the government recommends all kinds of things, but you and I have something in common. This is our responsibility. And, you know, we're not going to flaunt the law, but are these laws really? the way they make them and how they change them and all that. So anyway, we managed to navigate through that and these guys were very helpful to me and I developed a deep respect for them and friendship with them. You know, you, got to, you know them, right? You're bound to like them. And they called me uh, three or four months ago and they had this idea and I said, okay, okay, you want to start an institution? And they said, yeah, and I said, well, okay. I know how to do that. I said, so I'll help you do it. And they said, we want to do it with you. So so they want me to do it. (laughs) 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 These guys are all faculty members. They're pretty shrewd. And uh, and so, yeah, we're going to do this thing. And, And what it's about, it's a very precise thing. Science is a way of knowing. To know a thing proceeds at its own rate. Takes time to find out. Well, on the other hand, decisions, that's an exercise of power. And that has to be done all the time. It's just foolish to say that scientists can rule. Uh, here, Winston Churchill, I've said him a lot, he writes a letter to H.G. Wells in 1901. Churchill was 27 years old. And he says, I can't agree, H.G. Wells wrote novels about the future, you know, and Churchill loved those. Uh, He said, I can't agree that a future society can be governed by experts. He said, said, because expert knowledge is necessarily limited knowledge. That means if it were true that Anthony Fauci knows everything in the world about uh, infectious diseases, he does know a lot, because of that, he couldn't know everything in the world about a host of subjects that are relevant to these lockdowns. You see, because teen suicide, unemployment, bankruptcy, uh, starvation, world, you know, third world starvation. Apparently there's a huge amount of that because of this stuff, right? And he he can't possibly know everything about that. And Churchill says, how do you make those decisions? Well, he just gives a description of Aristotle's description of practical judgment. you consult the experts, you consult everything you know. You can consult the people from whom you get your authority, which in the case of a democratic country is the people. And you make the best practical judgment from day to day because the facts are changing all the time. And this idea, so here's another thing about uh, Churchill sat in rooms with generals in the biggest wars in human history and those generals they're all experts they never entered the room in agreement and his job was to find an agreement with them taking out of account into account a bunch of things that are above their pay grade the model that the head of one center in the centers for disease control should be the source of truth for something that shuts down large parts of the world economy. Only the great wars have done that in the past. That a guy who knows about infection is competent to make a judgment like that. And and we even think today he's the only one competent. Oh, and another thing, because these experts, you know, while they're researching, they always disagree, right? And so they have suppressed that. This great Barrington Declaration, which Uh, our three friends claim is just a recitation of uh, epidemic policies for 100 years. It's what has always been done. You can't stop a highly contagious virus. It's gonna go everywhere. So focus on who's gonna be really hurt by it and protect them. That's the playbook forever. And now we've tried to protect everybody. They published this great Barrington Declaration and 50,000 medical professionals signed it. 900,000 total people have signed it. And they go on TV and say that there's a consensus in favor of these lockdowns. And those people, the Great Barrington Declaration was taken off Facebook. right? And, that's, and look, these guys are at Stanford and Stanford and Harvard and Oxford. Those are pretty good places. The
1: they, Barrington they, authors, yes, of yeah, course. Yeah, Yeah, you know, those are yeah.
0: experts. They're experts. And they don't, and see, they're also people of great common sense, right? I said earlier, the very best scholars know also what they don't know. And these guys have the humility to have that, which goes along with their genius as top scientists.
1: So many things I want to jump off of with what you just talked about, but... Let's let's start with this. Something I wrote a little while ago became quite popular, and it's that it was essentially this idea that the governance by expert class is a kind of model that we're experimenting with, and yet we're seeing the spectacular failure of it in all sorts of realms, almost daily. Um, it, and somehow we become conditioned, I think this is actually what you said, to think that this, that, that, this makes sense, that, that, that governance by expert class. But, but Churchill had a very different idea. I didn't know this. It seems kind of obvious when you, when you say that, but how is it that we suddenly have accepted this idea of, of rule by experts?
0: Yeah, well, uh, Churchill writes about that. Uh, he says that uh, science has taken over the world. Uh, we've been conscripted into its ranks put to work according to its principles, cared for in our age, educated by it. No generations of men have ever been handled like this before. Well, we just believe in that in the ability of science to arrange everything. But remember, the word science comes from a Latin word. It means scientia, it means to know. And that's something different than to do. And it's very hard to know everything. The spirit, the proper spirit of science, is observant and receptive. Whereas when we have to act, we, we have to assert. And so we have uh, uh, we've delivered ourselves into the hands of people who have distorted their own art or, or discipline. Uh, in the ancient world, uh, you know, the great question, the great question of Plato's Republic is, How do you get the best rule? And the story of the Republic can be summarized. It's of course a very beautiful book and hard to summarize, but the best regime would be the regime of the wise. They're the ones who could do it. But then it breaks down. Well, they don't want to. (laughs) They've got better things to think about. Oh, we could make them. How would we who are not wise know who they are. So the whole scheme breaks down and then that gives rise in ancient political philosophy which gets revived in the Federalist uh, papers, especially, with the idea that you have to mix up the powers in a way that uh, uh, gives everybody a chance and provides stability. So, you know, in you know, these totalitarian regimes, uh, you know, the big one is China now, and they, they're just like the ancient tyrannies, except they have the tools of science, which are very powerful tools. The, that word totalitarian, that's uh, a 20th century word. It's the 20th century word for the old thing, tyranny, which is the worst form of government of all. It's devastating. It's uh, you should, in book five of Aristotle's politics, he explains how they sustain themselves, these tyrants. Uh, no one is to have high thoughts. No one is to have privacy. People are not to have trust and friendship among one another. Nothing is to be thought of as higher than the rule and the ruler. Right? And that's but but it's hard to do that. You know you use spies all the time. He says spies is a big thing for these tyrants. But now spying is automatic. You can watch everybody all the time. Just read nineteen eighty-four, right? It's all forecast and that. That's the thing. If you if you take a special class of people and invest them with the power to rule, then how do you know they're people, right? How do you know they won't do that in their own interest? And that's why you have to spread the powers around. And that, you know, the reason I like these three scientists, reason I like your newspaper for that matter, is You don't think, and they don't think, you get to tell everybody in the world what to do. (laughs)
1: It seems so simple, doesn't it?
0: Yeah, it isn't, it is simple. In the education system today, we're not to read anything outside this time. And that means we hold in contempt. We wipe out human history. That was all slavery and oppression, right? Well, in book one of Aristotle's Politics, he condemned slavery. Isn't that interesting? And, uh, and you know, nobody knows that today. Uh, and he condemns it on just the ground that you condemn it. The same ground Abraham Lincoln condemned it. It's taking from somebody something that is naturally theirs. And, and you know, Lincoln's argument is uh, God made each of us with a head, a mouth and hands. The implication being that the head should guide the hands and the feeding of the mouth. You know, that's just simple, right? Because, you know, Thomas Jefferson's way of describing it was, and you know, he was a great condemner of slavery, beautiful, eloquent condemner of slavery, and he took huge steps against it in his lifetime. He's the reason there's never, he's the single most important reason, there's never been slavery in what's the old Northwest Territory where I happen to live, Michigan, Ohio, Indiana, Illinois. What was his argument? Some men are not born with saddles on their backs, nor others booted and spurred to ride them. Men are not horses, and they shouldn't be governed the same way that horses are governed. And that, you know, this rooting in the nature of the case, that's the thrust of ancient political thought. And modern political thought, in its diseased and latest uh, toxic versions, its idea. Is to remake humanity and its societies, and you know if you doubt that, uh, read Karl Marx, and then read George Orwell. At the end of uh, 1984, there's a toward the end there's a philosophic seminar set in the atmosphere that would be typical of totalitarian regimes. Uh, The interlocutors are O'Brien, of the inner party, and the protagonist, Winston Smith, named after Winston Churchill by George Orwell. And Winston is undergoing torture while he engages in the seminar. What he wants him to make him think is that uh, two and two can make five, and also four, and also three. The answer to two and two is whatever the party says. And, and see, that's a repealing of the law of contradiction. And that yeah, all human reasoning is built on that law. That's a cup and that means it's not an elephant. And it can't be both, right? They're different things. If you, can, if you repeal that, then reality is shattered. What was Winston Smith's job in 1984? His job was to rewrite every text all the time, uh, every encyclopedia article, every news account, every book, to to make it say what the party says today, he's changing history. And that's just a destruction of reality. Uh, Aristotle writes in uh, uh, the politics, this alone is denied even to God to make what has been not to have been. This word for discovery, Science, one of the most beautiful words. And remember, I said it's receptive, it's a hearing. And Aristotle says the virtuous soul can open itself to the things outside it. Uh, that means the virtuous soul is not a victim of its accidental features, its color, its circumstances, its whatever, right? If the soul is able to do what it seems to be able to do, this is how Aristotle argues, then it has to be a it has to be only what it thinks. And that means that you you, we have these bodies, they demand things of us, they get in our way. We have to control that. We can't banish it. We have to build a good soul so that we are able to attend to the things around us. That's, in the education business, it's just crucial. You have to learn to listen and think. And that's not the same thing as learning to do. It can inform doing, and it will ultimately, but it's not the same thing. Indeed, doing, the ultimate aim of doing, of all action, in the classic authors is to protect the ability of the human being to think. That's the claim in book 10 of Aristotle's Ethics, and that's the claim of the Declaration of Independence.
1: Now, I keep thinking, talking about science, the thing that it really never is, is absolutist. Especially,
0: you know, modern science, which is, you know, it's a great discovery, and that is a systematic process of trial and error that's transparent, so anybody can participate in it. That that's the way to accumulate knowledge, and that is very powerful. It's, you know, and it's a beautiful thing. It's a new way of knowing and a great way of knowing. The truth is, though, uh, it never reaches an ultimate solution. And so it's it's just foolish, you know, uh, to to think that the process would come to a stop. But what does that mean? That means for action and for government, for force, that means it should protect that process, but it has to be independent of it. And that's why, you know, there's so... Aristotle divides the soul into two main parts, the human being into two main parts, the body and the soul, and the rational soul has two subparts. And they're they're distinguished by what you're thinking about. Uh, if you're thinking... Uh, what is the nature of light, you're thinking about something that probably never changes. And that means once you know it, you know it. Whereas if you're thinking, what am I gonna do today? Uh, Think of any hard choice, you know. Uh, Am I going to give up my vacation or am I gonna do a service, you know? And there's no abstract rule about which of those is right. It depends on the circumstances. Uh, if, if you're at the point of exhaustion where you're not going to be able to work effectively anymore, you better take a break. But if you're not at that point and some great thing is available to be done, maybe you better do that. that you can't write a rule about that. That is in the province of what Churchill calls... Churchill. I confused Churchill and Aristotle, and for good reason. That's practical judgment. And, and remember, everybody has that, has to have it, because everybody has to make choices every day. Most of our mental weather is figuring out what to do in light of everything we know and hope for, and reconciling the contradictions in them, and adjusting constantly, because the circumstances are always changing. And that's what it is to live a human life, if you hedge that about with a welter of rules, you know. If, if we we the co- our college doesn't take any money from the government, we love the government in its own for- form and fancy. We know as much about it as anybody alive. But this modern thing, if if you let the federal government pay for your your student aid, the the pages of rules. 500 plus changing all the time and I've been told by several lawyers I could never understand them you know we don't we don't abide by them we don't take the money but I, I was curious I said send me the rules he said ah you can't read them and you know he's a lawyer and I'm a, I like to say he's a lawyer and I'm an educated man <laughs> He said, you know I'm pretty smart I bet I could read them." he said no I can't read them we have specialists who read them right now, that's, that's a different way of governing. It's a different kind of thing. There are forms of government. The old form in America, that's, in my opinion, the most glorious form. And, and the point is, whether you like this or not, you have to be able to recognize it's a different kind of thing. And, and it's a kind of thing where we can't participate in it in the same way. Because nobody can know all the rules, only experts can know the rules. Uh, ah. You know, Madison writes, uh, "If the laws be so voluminous and changeable," it's a paraphrase, it's in the Federalist seventy-three, I think, "voluminous and changeable," uh, that people can't understand them. Then it doesn't matter how they're made; they're not really laws. You See, now think about the pandemic.
1: That's I mean. Absolutely fascinating. It gets us back to this question, of how did the experts end up, you know, how did we end up assuming that the experts get to rule? Because a lot of us kind of, I mean, when I look at what happened over the last, you know, since since February, March of 2020, a lot of us clearly have assumed that that's the case.
0: Yeah. First of all, they, there has to be something powerfully attractive about it. It's not It's not some plot that nobody believed in. Science can do so much. You're here, I'm here. We don't live in the same place. We had to get here. Uh, We've got some equipment around us. You had to bring it. It has to be carryable. Uh, That wasn't true 30 years ago. And so science does wonderful things. And its claim uh, has come to be more and more that it can do everything. But then, what will there be left for us to do?
1: And, and there's this huge irony, right? That that it's almost like you have to create an academy to actually explain to people what science is now. Yeah. Right.
0: Yeah, and it shouldn't be. You know, this is, do a thought experiment. Imagine the American government in 1900. It's uh, six or eight percent of the gross domestic product, and that six or eight percent is distributed. Uh, in a in a sort of a pyramid and the wide big big bit at the mo- at the bottom where most of it is is in counties and towns and then the second thinner bit is states and the federal government is a little bit up at the top well now the government is 52 or 3 or 4% of the gross domestic product and there's a system of centralized control up and down the line that makes it extensively uniform now that's a that's a different kind of thing turns the whole thing upside down and then makes it much bigger why did that happen and there are arguments about that you can that that's a story that can be known uh we have a constitutional reader and it and and it's it's pretty fat it's really great and it starts with the form of the American government and its purposes, and the reasons behind them. And it goes through the slavery crisis, and then it goes into the Progressive Era. American history can be divided into three parts. And in the Progressive Era, in the 19th century, these ideas came into America from Germany. I think they probably came into China from Germany Mm. through us, right? But I'm not sure about that. I do know the, you know, Karl Marx was a German and these guys called themselves Marxist. And that was all hope. You know, Woodrow Wilson and John Dewey and Frank Goodnow and people like that, those are the leaders. The most wonderful hopes for, for the future. We can rationalize the society. We can make everything orderly. Everybody can have opportunity. And they, they started gathering power into a permanent class of experts, now known as the bureaucracy or the administrative state, and that has become a force of its own now. Uh, huge political contributions come out of that and from what we call the regulated community, and that means that there are people who are, they have an interest. Some of these people actually write, you can read all this in our Constitution Reader, every Hillsdale kid reads it, and you get to read its charms and evaluate its weight and arguments, right? Because, you know, this is all just stuff I'm saying. You can read it yourself. They believed that if you took a large group of trained people and gave them a guaranteed position and a guaranteed salary, that they would not have any personal interest then to serve. I mean, they write that mm-hmm. in just about those words in many places. And come to find out, those people are still human. The old laws can't really be repealed. Uh, we don't get to have heaven here on Earth. And even if we could, we couldn't make it ourselves.
1: <laughs> you know, you mentioned a little earlier about how, yeah, you know, there's this project, I mean, essentially to kind of, en- you know, engineer society, engineer people from the ground up. This is kind of where we've, and the experts believe they, they can do that. Reality, I think you alluded to this earlier too, kind of takes a back seat. But there's also this sort of this whole kind of the ideology, this social constructivist, you know, ideology that actually reality it really is whatever it is mm-hmm. that we say it is right or we believe it is. But there is an element of truth to this, right? There, hence our acceptance of of a whole lot of, of rules and dictates and that, that, that over the last couple of years.
0: Force can do a lot. Tyranny can be devastating to people. What it can't do is make them happy. And uh, that means that there's always tension in it, right? China is richer than it's ever been today. There's an argument that it's become the most powerful country in the world. Are the people happy there? I know some people in Hong Kong and Taiwan who are very unhappy. Hong Kong because they've been taken over Taiwan because they fear the same yeah that's right that's not good but there must be I mean there is in China itself in mainland China in the regime itself people surely they don't like to be scored and rated their compliance measured constantly and that's possible now Mm -hmm. in America too because if you just go back to the nature of the case human beings are mortal beings but there's something immortal about them, and it's apparent from birth. And the most important being alive today is my first grandchild, <laughs> who's just turned one year old. There's another one coming too. I'm happy to report to the world that we're beginning to produce in my family, and just watch her grow up. She's uh, she knows early that she's the same kind of thing we are, and she should emulate us. And she's making choices about that. Uh, we've always had boxer dogs. We have a puppy right now. Uh, compare, and they're wonderful, right? But they are what they are. They're governed entirely by their nature. The spark of freedom is not in them. And, and Charlotte is the name of my granddaughter. And she knows what kind of thing things are already and she's learning to talk. And no other creature has ever done that. Every human child does it. And they teach themselves. That's a magic, right? That's a a mystery. That's a beautiful thing about us. And yeah, we have our limits, but the trouble with tyranny is it takes that specific thing, the best in us, and interferes with it. Whereas better to let it flourish and then we can be happy. These people in uh, Virginia who don't like their kids taught the stuff they're being taught, and they don't like the threats that the kids will be taken away if they object. I mean, they challenge the custody of parents over children. And they don't like the FBI looking into them, right? Well, that seems to me natural that, of course, they don't, right? Because having children is the most impractical thing somebody can do, right? It takes forever to raise them. Uh, they're nothing but trouble. And yet, if you don't do it, you've missed something essentially human and you know it every day. And that means that in the family and in the community and in work, everybody gets a chance to be a king or a queen. That's the promise of America, see. You can have a domain. In the pandemic, I was very touched by, uh, I mean, I was cross about it too, because they were interfering with our work with our students. And for the most part, we were able to stop them doing that. But next time, maybe not. There's a diner uh, in Jonesville, Hillsville is a little town. And uh, the diner is the greatest diner in the world. It's Spangler's. And that guy, you know, that's a 50-year-old business. His father started it. His mother still works in it. He's buying it from his mother so that when she dies, the, the children can all have an equal piece of it. And the whole family, uh, three generations, he's got a kid working in it. They depend on the diner. And they were shut down the first time, and they didn't, almost didn't survive it. And they could see how long they could last in a shutdown. And the second time, he refused to do it. He saw it. We became the legal aid society for local businesses, <laughs> and he he is just lovely. I mean, I, I just love that guy. He's an unassuming guy, but he just says, just like the people in Loudoun County, these are our children. He said, this is my life's work, and we have lived a good life serving people, literally what you do in a restaurant, and and. Why should this be disrupted?
1: This is so fascinating what you're saying because it just, it, it it struck me, uh, recently I've been thinking about, you know, what does it take to activate a society against, uh, you know, convincingly, arguably irrational policy. Right. And so it's the children, you know, Loudoun County is a great example, um, in, in Virginia. Um, where children are being taught things that parents are really willing to, that normally weren't, wouldn't, were not would not were just kind of unassuming, uninterested in politics or anything like this, are suddenly active. Hey, wait a sec. Okay. This is, this is, now you've gone too far. Similarly with, uh, you know, vaccine mandates for children, for example, that this, or the proposal of that, vaccinating children. Okay. Wait a sec. Whoa. Right. It seems to me like these are the questions ultimately, that are kind of waking up the sleeping giant, so to speak. I don't know if you could call it that, but it but it's really, really interesting. That you
0: that's... and I are having the same thoughts. Uh, the college has a publication called Imprimis, and uh, it goes to about 6 million people. And I've written the next one, soon to be published. And it makes that argument that when uh, you interfere with the nature of things, those things rebel. I use as an example Loudoun County and Mitch Spangler in his diner. And because you're, and and what does it take to wake people up? Well, just think what critical race theory is. It's it's a simple thing. They're saying that accidental features of you, accidental feature of a thing is just something that doesn't define it, it just happens to have it. Accidental features of especially your race and your sex, but also other circumstances of yours are defining of you. Now, no parent tells the child that. What you tell the child is, you should become a good human being and then you can do anything a human being can do. There's no limits, except the human limits, right? So they're taking these children and they're introducing them to the limits they face. And they're taking away from them specifically their humanity. And no parent wants that to happen. You know, you want, uh, I have a child, she's a PhD now. And when she was a little girl, she would, uh, if if you told her no, she would lie on the bed with her, uh, on her back and kick her feet and cry. And I'd stick my head in there and say, what's wrong with you? And she'd say, why don't you let me be happy? and I'd say, you're too young to be happy. You have to, you have to learn to be good. She wrote her doctoral thesis on that, on Aristotle. She's, she's one of the world's leading experts on that point now. And it is deeply true. Children are naturally happy, but also they have to learn to be good. And if they learn that, then anything human is possible to them. And that's, and that's what parents want.
1: Well, you know, and it's very interesting uh, to, you know, I've been learning recently more and more about, you know, your or Hillsdale's initiatives in this realm of, you know, the K to 12 education, the younger generation, I guess, you know, with, with, with Charlotte in mind, right, as Mm. uh, I, 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 it certainly must be the case and that it's just, it's very interesting because what, what is it that motivated this kind of, you know, interest in the, in the. You know, K twelve lower uh, education for for Hillsdale. Why was why is that something that that you jumped into, and it seems to be accelerating from what I've been seeing.
0: The first line of Aristotle's metaphysics is, "The human being stretches himself out to know." the 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 book, the metaphysics after the physics, the things that come beyond the physical world. Uh, The last book is about God, it sort of builds to God. But the first thing it starts with us, we want to know and we can know, you see. And so everybody at some point in his life falls in love with learning. Something strikes you and all of a sudden you're in a different place. And all you have to do is know it, see it, right? Well, we all want that, and and educate. If, if you really want that, then the next thing you know, you're working in schools. I almost went to fancy law school. I was forced to read Plato's Republic, and I fell in love. I just, you know, I can I can describe to you the scene in book one of the feder- of Plato's Republic that made me do that. I didn't even want to take the course. I was forced to. So, that's why education. Also. We're harder to raise than other creatures. It takes a long time, you know, because there's a lot more to get done. You know, our bodies and our, and our souls, our thoughts and our physical beings, they have to be educated. And it takes a long time. There's a first grade teacher in Leander, Texas, outside Austin. Sorry, she's a kindergarten teacher. And she's maybe the best teacher in America. I, I go around, I won't say her name here, but I, I've been to her class many times. She's in one of the charter schools we sponsor. And if you go in there, it's, it's just riveting. And I've turned it into a tourist attraction. If you go in there on a given day, there'll probably be three or four people sitting there wanting to see the show. Well, these little wigglers, you know, they want to know. And she knows how to dispose them, make them realize that. And, the next, and they learn fast and they learn amazing things right away. Well, so that's why education, and it, it, if you can see that it's joyful, because it is, it's not. And, and it, one of the reasons we take the joy out of it today, because it's mostly gone today, most places, is that we forget that this is a fulfillment and exercise of our nature. And it's not an engineering project. I I like to say, we've got to stop thinking about education as making something. It's not. You're helping something grow. And things that grow have the principle and, and energy of growth inside themselves. You don't do it for them, right? And if you do it badly, you can only stunt them. Because you're trying to make them grow in a different direction from what they are. Because we've turned our sights on nature itself and attempted to overpower it. That's why we're distorting children today. And that's cruel.
1: I've been wanting to ask you, you know, what is it that really kind of drives you, what really motivates you? But I kind of feel like this whole conversation has been letting me know this.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You know, like, like... Any serious person like you, I fell in love and I've just not fallen out. You know, I love my wife, fell in love with her, uh, but she is a form of all the things I love. And if you love those things, especially if you get to have the wonderful experience, you know, Hillsdale College is very difficult to get into these days. And we regret that, sort of and sort of take sinful pride in it, probably. But these kids are smart enough to go anywhere they want to go, and they come to us, and they have to take half the time. The courses are the same for everybody. If you say, I don't like science, we say, shame on you. Now take it, right? And everything is like that, right? And that means that it's a common conversation among people who are delighted to be where they are. It, uh, you know, one thing I never had any doubt about, uh, I know Vice President Prince and I talked to his task force two or three times, and he said, uh, are the kids afraid of the pandemic? And I said, no. And he said, "Uh, why not? And I said, well, there are two reasons. One is, they're young, they feel immortal. But the other is, they can read. He said, you know, and they, said, you know, what a crazy thing to do to take four years off in your life and earn nothing. It costs a fortune, by the way, for us, for the people, that we, it also costs it's cheap for the student, but people all over the country help, help and we don't charge them much. It just takes all their time. They have to learn to do something. They're young and beautiful and strong. And they're made for the joys of spring. They have to learn to sit in a room and concentrate on difficult things for hours at a time. That's an amazing form of self-mastery. And they, and, and if you get it, and the best of them, they all get it, but some of them get it to the point where they really don't want to do anything else. And you know, they play sports and they have dances and they do all that stuff too, but it, it, you know, you can. My favorite sport is eating in the dining hall with the students. At, uh, you know, and they're all in there, right? And you just walk in and sit down with them. I'm the old guy who sits with the students, and they put cartoons in the paper about it, about it. And I always twist whatever they say around to the question of the good. And it's just, and the minute you know, and you know, they're young, and and we're all familiar with each other, right? So. When I sit down, it's a big deal when I sit down, but they soon forget who I am and we get to talking. And then they'll say they like something, as an example, and I'll say, why do you like it? And you never have to ask more than two or three questions until they'll say, in some form or another, this is a good thing. And then you say, oh, what is it for a thing to be good? And they've all memorized Aristotle's definition Of that because they know that's what i think and teach and then i and then i disagree with it and now we're really having a talk you see and everybody sits up straighter and the time flies and they're very dutiful they don't want to be late for class and so they'll start looking at their watches and that's how i know, know what time it is but if they don't have class they'll sit there for three hours and i will too so yeah Why college? Why not?
1: (laughs) Well, Dr. Larry Aron, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show.
0: I'm an admirer of you and your enterprise. Thank you.